This Wednesday evening, I'm really excited. Nice to see some of my favorite students at the front table here. I just love it. Great to see you guys. Looking forward to uh, studying God's Word together and uh, so thankful that He gives us this privilege to be a church and to be His people and to come together and to think and to learn. And I pray that He uh, blesses our evening. I know that I uh, desperately need him and need to hear from him, and so we're going to do a little bit of studying of the uh, Old Testament, but I'm really asking that God would help us to uh, do this as a means of communing with him and really growing in our relationship with him, our walk with him. Let's open up with a, a word of prayer, and Papa Brown, would you mind praying for us? Amen. All right, well, we're going to begin to look at the first five books of the Bible uh, this evening. So it's taken us a while to get here. I guess maybe this is our 12th week or 11th week of doing this, and we're finally getting to the first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And we're going to take a while with these, so surprise, surprise, but we're going to take a while in Genesis through Deuteronomy. I don't know how long, uh, but tonight we're going to give just a little introduction to these books, get us ready for what we're about to read uh, by starting with kind of a quick overview. And I'm going to begin with just the names of these books, not individually, but as a set. Sometimes we call these books uh, the Pentateuch, and that means five scrolls because originally the Bible was written on these leather scrolls. And uh, with long books like these, you would get about one scroll a book. And yet these books were all seen as going together, and they wanted to make that clear. And so one of the names for them was the Pentateuch, the the five scrolls. Another name was Torah, and uh, we usually think of Torah as meaning law, but Torah literally means uh, teaching or instruction. And in the Bible, these are sometimes called the books of Moses or the law of Moses. And I uh, bring that up because they're grouped together like that, because while we often think of them as individual books, uh, they really are telling one long story. And and, uh, that's why they have a name like Pentateuch or or Torah. And you see that they're connected uh, in the books themselves. So for example, the very first word in Exodus in in Hebrew (laughs) is the word and, and and is a connecting word. And so he's purposefully connecting what he's about to write with what we just read. And then Exodus uh, ends with Moses standing outside the tent of meaning. You remember this? It's like a a really amazing moment. The glory of God has come down, and yet uh, Moses is not able to enter, and he's just standing outside the tent of meaning. And then Leviticus begins with God calling Moses from inside the tent of meeting. And then uh, Leviticus is about how Moses moves from outside the tent of meeting to inside the tent of meeting. So Numbers, uh, Exodus ends with Moses outside and Leviticus begins with Moses outside, but Numbers starts with Moses in the tent of meeting. And we're wondering how did that happen? And Leviticus is really the answer to that. And then Numbers tells us about how the generation that originally made the covenant with Yahweh failed to trust God and were judged in the wilderness. And Deuteronomy talks about how Moses got the next generation ready before they entered the promised land. And and he worked through the covenant with them and explained the covenant that God was making with them. And so you can see why sometimes the writers of Scripture would look back on Genesis through Deuteronomy and call them the book of Moses, not books of Moses, but book. So Second Chronicles 25, verse 4 says, But he did not put their children to death according to what is written in the law in the book of Moses. In Mark 12, 26, Jesus calls it by the same name. Have you not read in the book of Moses? 
I suppose one reason they might have been divided uh, into separate books is just because of how big this part of the Bible is. Uh, the Pentateuch contains these five individual books that tell one story, but we're, we're kind of thankful that they're divided into individual books, actually, because it's like he's breaking them up into manageable sections for us. Because if you just read this one book, if you read it as one book, Genesis to Deuteronomy, it's massive. Uh, so it's about 187 chapters, contains roughly 20% of the Old Testament, and 15% of the entire Bible. So Genesis is around 32,000 words. Exodus and Numbers are both about 25,000 words apiece. Deuteronomy, 23,000 words. Leviticus, almost 19,000 words. So if you read about 200 words a minute, that's about 104 hours of reading. So five days of nonstop reading. That's, this is a big part of the Bible. You would need to walk uh, through, uh, you need to read Matthew through Ephesians in the New Testament to read an amount equivalent to the Pentateuch. So obviously that's a lot of pages, and it's not just a lot of pages. Uh, there are a, a lot of important truths in the Pentateuch. If you think of the Bible like a house, the Pentateuch uh, is, is sort of the foundation. They give us the truths that we need to understand the rest of, of the Bible. Uh, if you just walk through some of the truths in the Pentateuch, you learn about who God is. Say you wanted to do a study on the character of God. What book in the Bible would you go to? Exodus, Exodus, Exodus. Uh, if you wanted to understand creation, where the world came from, Genesis. The fall, what's the problem with us? The Pentateuch. Exile, which is one of the absolute major themes in the whole Bible is this concept of exile. Starts, you start to understand that in Genesis. This doctrine of the seed. So the idea of the seed becomes really important even as we come to the New Testament, Genesis, uh, the Pentateuch. We get the first gospel in the Pentateuch. This idea of covenant. So you could say, how do I summarize uh, what the Bible is? You could describe the Bible as a, as a covenant. Also, if you wanted to explain the story of the Bible, you might talk about these five key covenants. And three of those covenants, three of the most important covenants in the entire Bible are found in the Pentateuch, the Noahic, the Abrahamic, and the Mosaic, and also there's something called the priestly covenant. You uh, wouldn't really understand Israel, what's going on with Israel without the Pentateuch. Uh, the doctrine of redemption, say you wanted to find redemption, where do you go in the Old Testament? You go to Exodus, that's where redemption is explained. Tabernacle, the, the idea of the tabernacle, sacrifice, Lamb of God, uh, atonement, if you think about the most important, pivotal, world-changing figures in the Bible, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, then probably David, and uh, four of them are in the Pentateuch. And there's more, I'm sure. But if you take the Pentateuch out, you can't understand the rest of the Old Testament. And obviously, if you can't understand the rest of the Old Testament, you can't understand the new. In fact, I heard something funny the other day. They, there's a professor... Uh, who's really famous for teaching the Old Testament. And his students would tease him, you know, don't you like the New Testament? And he would say, yes, I love the New Testament. Whenever I read it, it reminds me of the Old Testament. Um, and you could say that about most of Joshua through Malachi in regards to the Pentateuch. Yes, I love Joshua through Malachi because it reminds me of the books of Moses which tells us the author, uh, the books of Moses. And I say Moses because essentially we believe these five books were written by Moses. And if you ever take a class on the Old Testament in a uh, secular school, uh, you'll learn that uh, nowadays a lot of people don't think that. Somehow in the last 100 or 200 years, people think they figured out that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch, which I think is kind of funny or sad because in saying that, they're going against a very long tradition. And tradition's not everything I know, especially when it comes to technology, but it is pretty significant when it comes to history. And these books from very early on were thought to have been written by Moses, and you can see why. Because while there's nowhere in the Pentateuch that says everything was written by Moses, there are lots of references to his uh, writing activity. I just wrote down four, Exodus 17, uh, Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, 
but I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Exodus 24, verse 4. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and on and on. And so it's not surprising that later on, uh, Israelites, looking back, spoke of these five books as the book of Moses. We even read 2 Chronicles 25.4. Ezra 6.18 says the same thing. Nehemiah 13.1, 1 Kings 2.3. And Jesus and the early church thought the same. So they clearly connected Torah with uh, Moses. Um, in fact, wasn't it in John 5 where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he's like, if you believed Moses, you would know and believe me. And so the tradition that Moses wrote the Pentateuch is about 3,000 years old. And you look at the books themselves and there's evidence that they, they are really old. So there's ancient vocabulary in the Pentateuch. I was reading something interesting this week about um, loan words. So you know how in English we have uh, Loan words, not every English word we use is technically an English word like cafe or bazaar or uh, kindergarten. Well, the Pentateuch has those as well, and actually the whole Old Testament has those. And when you look at the loan words in the Pentateuch, it's not surprising to find that most of them come from where do you think? Egypt. And those are mostly in the stories of Joseph and the Exodus. So the language is ancient. It, it's connected really, even the loan words are connected to where it says it was written and where it comes from. And the structures within the Pentateuch reflect an ancient structure. For example, uh, how Deuteronomy is laid out is a structure that was used in Mo Moses' day. On the other hand, there are some parts in the Pentateuch that are a little hard to reconcile with Moses. Though I should say, it's not the fact that it's written in the third person. Sometimes, nowadays, we would think, well, if it was written by Moses, why doesn't it say, I, Moses? But third-person narrative like this is a style, and it's an important one because it distances Moses from what he's writing. He doesn't want to be thought of as the hero. So that's not really significant. But there are other parts that are a little difficult. Like, uh, for example, Genesis chapter 14, verse 14, talks about this city called Dan, and it's this story about Abram pursuing those kings who had kidnapped his nephew, uh, Lot, and it says that he pursued them as far as Dan. And this is a city in the Promised Land that actually got its name from the tribe of Dan, which was one of Jacob's children. And we know that because of Judges 18.29 where it says, and they named the city Dan after the tribe of Dan. But originally it had a different name in Abraham's day. And so there are some, and even Moses's, and there are some explanations people give, but it seems like Moses probably wrote the original name and someone later changed it to Dan so that readers could understand what he was even talking about. And there are some geographical details like that, uh, but there are other things as well. Like, for example, if you look over at Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, this is a different kind of example. Because you find as you read the Pentateuch, there are certain statements made about Moses that he could have written about himself technically, but it would make a little more sense uh, if someone else wrote them. Like last week, my wife and I were laughing about Exodus 2, where it talks about his mother seeing him and saying he was a good-looking child. Um, that You could write that about yourself, I'm sure, but it <laughs> seems a little different. Or this one, Numbers 12, 3, it's probably a better example. It says, now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And meek is basically humble there. And you could make an argument that Moses is just being honest, like the man Moses was the most humble man on the planet. I'm talking about me. But uh, it might make a little more sense if someone else wrote that. And then uh, Deuteronomy 34, this is maybe the clincher, because in the last chapter of De the Pentateuch, we read about Moses' death and burial. And it's possible that God had uh, Moses predict his death. And even uh, there's a professor named Abner Chow. He says he thinks that Moses, it's important to believe that Moses predicted his death because it sets us up for this expectation of prophets who predict their own deaths, which, of course, uh, we're going to see with Jesus. But it seems maybe to me likely, or at least possible, that someone wrote this later because if you look at Deuteronomy 34, 6, it says... God buried Moses in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows 
the place of his burial to this day. And you see this phrase, to this day. And so what's going on? Are these the books of Moses or not? And some people I respect think this is a really super big deal. Like, they wouldn't have people teach at their college if they didn't believe every single word was written by Moses. But I don't really think it's such a big deal. I think it's important to see that these books essentially are written by Moses because that's how the authors of Scripture looked at them. That's how Jesus thought of them. But I don't think it's a problem to imagine that there might have been inspired editors, prophet editors, who came later and updated some of the material or made certain comments to help later readers understand. And if you want to read more about that, you, there's a professor named Michael Grisanti who's written a whole article on that idea of inspired editing. But what is more of a problem is not recognizing that these were primarily written by Moses because of the way Jesus quotes them and also because it makes a big difference when it comes to understanding the setting for these books and the purpose. So whenever you read the Old Testament, remember, this is, I just plead with you to remember, beg you to remember, that this is not just history, it is prophets preaching history. And they're preaching it for a particular purpose. And so it does matter to, it, it matters that Moses wrote this because it affects what is the purpose, why was why did he write Genesis 1 and 2, for example? And that's kind of what I want to spend most of our time on, actually, uh, thinking about the, the purpose. What are these uh, first five books of the Bible basically about? What are they doing? And I want to begin uh, by making clear what they are not mostly about. Uh, because if you ask many people, what are the first five books of the Bible about, what answers do you think you would get? I, I think one answer you would get is law. A lot of people would say they're about rules, or maybe they would say they're about these weird rituals, but definitely law. There's a lot of rules, and we're really simplifying it, but that's kind of what the Pharisees thought of these first five books, right? But Jesus was different. If you ask Jesus, what are these books about, how would he answer? And uh, we don't need to take a lot of time because we've been emphasizing this the past couple weeks, but I'll show you one passage we haven't used yet. And that's John chapter 5, verse 46, where Jesus is talking to the religious leadership who are upset with him for breaking their laws. And he's responding and he's saying, they're misreading Moses. He's like, you, and he actually doesn't say you're misreading Moses. He says, you're not believing Moses. And what is his proof? This is John 5, 46. He says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And so Jesus clearly doesn't think these kinds of books should lead you to a legalistic kind of religion because he's like looking at the Pharisees and saying, you guys, if you actually were reading and believing Moses, not just me, if you were just reading and believing Moses, you wouldn't be saying what you were saying. You're, you're completely missing the point. So the Pentateuch is not about how Israel can keep the law and fulfill the covenant which I, I think we know if we've read the, the New Testament, because Paul says that a lot. Paul's always like going back to the Old Testament to say, it's salvation by faith alone, salvation by faith alone. But can we prove that from the Pentateuch? That's kind of the question. How could we show from the Pentateuch that it's not about us or Israel keeping the law and accomplishing salvation on our own? So like, yeah, we know the Pentateuch's not about just Israel keeping the law, but if I asked you, prove that from the Pentateuch, that it's not about, about Israel keeping the law, how would you do that? And so let me give you a couple ways to demonstrate that, which I think will help us get closer to understanding what is going on in the Pentateuch. One way to demonstrate that the first five books of the Bible are not about us being the Savior or Israel being the Savior by their, their efforts is to look at the beginning and the end of the story. So. Normally, whenever you're reading a story, the beginning and the ending is going to be important because they give you a sense of what the story is about. And that's definitely true in the Pentateuch. If you think about the beginning, uh, the beginning in the Pentateuch is especially important. It's Genesis 1 through 11. And one reason Genesis 1 through 11 is so important is because of how God teaches in the Pentateuch. So one of the things you see over and over in the Pentateuch, this is a style of, of, of education, I suppose, a style of teaching, a style the Bible uses to teach us, 
is that someone does something and then later someone else does almost the exact same thing. Jewish rabbis had a name for this, and I can't say it in Hebrew, but they would say, the deeds of the father are assigned to the sons. The deeds of the father are assigned to the sons. And that means, I'm quoting here, one scholar, he says, Moses wrote stories about the patriarchs, not only to tell us about the patriarchs, but also to point forward to what would happen to the descendants of those patriarchs. And one illustration of what I mean is the Exodus. So if you look at Abram in Genesis 12.10, so think about the Exodus, but I'm going to show you the deeds of the father are assigned to the son. So uh, Genesis 12.10, it says, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So what do you have there? Famine, and then you have descent to Egypt. And we turn later in Genesis, and you know what we find? We find a famine, and then the descendants of, Israel, of Abraham descending down into Egypt. Then what happens next to Abram? Genesis 12, 12. It says, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So what is Abram afraid of happening? He says, the Egyptians will kill him, but will they kill Sarah? No. So you could say this is a life-threatening situation for the male in Egypt, but not the female. And of course, that's what happens in Exodus 1. Sarah is then taken into service of the Pharaoh, and Abram's blessed. He gains all kinds of things. But what happens to the Pharaoh then? Genesis 12, 20. What does it say? But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And of course, that's what God does in Exodus. And then Genesis 12, 16, and chapter 13, verse 2, we see that Abraham left Egypt very wealthy because of all the things that Pharaoh gave him, and that's pretty much what happened to Israel as well when they left Egypt. And that's just one illustration. Another is Moses himself. If you read Exodus, what you'll find is that what happens to Moses in the beginning is what happens to Israel in, in, in the end. And so this is an important way the Pentateuch teaches. It uses what happens before to help you understand what's going to happen after. That's a feature of the Pentateuch. You read something happening, and it points you to what is going to happen, which means when you look at the beginning of the Pentateuch, and especially the story of Adam and Eve, this story at the beginning of the Pentateuch gives us a hint of what to expect later on, which is what? Exile. <laughs> Exile. And so if you think about what happens at the beginning of the Pentateuch, Genesis 1, God makes a world and is presented as without form and without, void, or without form and void, and he brings order to it. He makes it into this beautiful place, and he creates Adam and Eve, and he talks to them. And the first thing he does is bless them, and he tells them to be fruitful, and then he tells them to have dominion over all these things on the earth. And the earth there literally is the word land, so it's literally have dominion over the land, subdue the land. So you got this idea of bringing order to a place that's disordered, of blessing, of being fruitful, of, of land. And where do you hear that again next in Genesis? Genesis 12. God pretty much takes what he says to Adam, and then he uses those same elements as he talks to Abram about what he's going to do through Israel. And what for? Back to Genesis 1 or now Genesis 2. How does Genesis 2 begin? And I always, I thought this was weird because I, I, why did they, I always thought, why did they divide the chapter where they divided here, this, dividing the seventh day from the, from the first six? And uh, we know these chapter divisions aren't inspired, but they were wise people, and so they did it for a reason, and yet this seems strange to me. It always seems strange until recently I realized that the seventh day is this really special part of creation, and so... Whoever put the chapter divisions in here wanted us to, to really pay attention to the seventh day, and he was right. Um, there was someone who has said, last in creation, first in intention. The Sabbath is the end of the creation of the heaven and earth, meaning the Sabbath is the purpose of creation, the goal of creation. And there's all kinds of cool ways that Moses points to that. Um, the first word in Genesis 1 is a seven-word sentence. The creation account is seven paragraphs. 
You can see when he describes the seventh day, he repeats himself three times. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. And Moses sets this day apart in a way that's special in verse 1. He says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. In other words, God's creation's done. Now let me tell you about the seventh day. And to really emphasize its importance, in verse 3 it says, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. And God making something holy is clearly important. And the seventh day is important because it's the purpose of creation, really. And that's why it fits here in chapter 2, because this chapter is about God's goal for Adam and Eve, and his goal is that they would dwell in his presence. And we're going to get to that more uh, later. But the key to them dwelling in his presence is the fact that they need to obey his command. God takes them and he puts them in this really special place. He gives them this responsibility to work it and keep it, which are words that are only used in the Bible later to describe the duties of a priest. The, word, the Hebrew words work and keep are the same words that are used to describe the priest's duties. And then God gives Adam and Eve a law in Genesis 2.17. But of course, what happens, they don't keep it, Genesis 3, because there's a serpent in the garden, the serpent deceives Eve. Eve. And what should have happened? What should have happened is that Adam subdued the serpent, but instead the serpent subdues them, and they're sent out of the garden. You could say they're exiled from the garden. And you keep reading, and that story of exile keeps getting repeated. They keep getting further and further away from the garden until Genesis 11, where you see their descendants are in a place called Babel, but that's actually Babylon. <laughs> Every other place in the Bible where that word Babel is translated, it's translated Babylon. They only translated Babel here because they want to help you catch the like wordplay, Babel, Babel, and that's good. But you miss that it's Babylon, and that's important to know. This is the founding of the city of Babylon, the anti-God city, and in Babylon they're judged and sent into exile over the whole world. And this, of course, provides the setting for God's call, calling out of Abraham in Genesis 12, which I, I, is important to see because if you know the Old Testament, that should sound kind of familiar because it's what happened to Israel. God chooses Israel. God blesses Israel. God makes them fruitful. God gives them laws. God places them in the promised land. God calls on them to exercise dominion over the land. But what happens is they're disobedient. They're deceived by the people in the land. They become just like the people in the land. They break God's commandments, and they end up being sent into exile into where? Babylon. So it's like they're at the end of Kings. It's really tragic because they're like literally back where they started. And so that's one way the beginning of this story kind of gets you ready for what to expect as you read the story of Israel. You're not expecting success because here's Adam and he was put in a perfect place and given this great opportunity to represent God and fill the earth with his glory. But he had to trust God enough to obey him. And so God gave him a test. Would he obey just one command? And he couldn't keep that one command. And so he was sent into exile, which makes it a little scary, obviously, when you see these wicked people, Israel, being given 613 commandments. Your hopes are not high <laughs> because Adam couldn't even obey one, and especially because you have so many patterns in the Pentateuch already where the sons do exactly what their fathers did. So that's the beginning. So I'm saying the Pentateuch, from the beginning, you're, you're thinking this is it's not going to be about people being able to save themselves through the obedience to the law. That's how the beginning sort of gives you that hint. The ending does as well. If you, if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 29 to 34, with all that set up, the ending is not surprising because God renews the covenant with Israel in chapter 29. And then listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. He's given them these blessings for obeying the covenant, but also warned them of these curses for disobeying. And in Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, he says, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. So what does that tell you about what Moses expects? <laughs> he kind of expects exile. And it keeps going, Deuteronomy 31, 16 to 21. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they're entering. 
and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I've made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day, because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. Now therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and despise me and break my covenant. And there's one more just like that in Deuteronomy 32 as well, which tells you if that's how the book of Deuteronomy ends, it tells you that the first five books of Moses expect that Israel is going to fail. Which makes you ask, what's going on then? If we look at the beginning of the story and the ending and we see failure, uh, because there's a lot about Israel and there's a lot about law in here. And there are parts of the story that kind of give you some hope for Israel. So if we were going to structure, sort of describe the structure of the Pentateuch, we would say uh, Genesis 1 to 11 give us the problems of the world. And if you were a movie director at that point, you would have the camera zoomed way out. And then Genesis 12 to 50, you zoom in and you've got the story of this one man and his family for three generations. And you're like, why? It's because this is supposed to be the solution to the problem. It's going to come from this man and his descendants. And in Exodus, we see God rescuing them and commissioning them. And it's all very exciting. But Israel's going to fail. And so what hope is there? And why is there all this law? And now we're kind of getting to where the writers of the New Testament come in, and they help us. Romans 4.15 is what, is what Paul, Paul says. Um, Paul explains what's going on in Romans 4.15 uh, like this. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law reveals man's need of a savior. But where did Paul get that idea? In the first five books. We can, we can see how the Pentateuch keeps us from looking to ourselves and pushes us to look outward just from the way that it begins and the way it ends. Another way we can uh, see that is by looking at how Israel did before and after the giving of the law. So look at how Israel before the law and after the law. Did the law... Did the law really help them be, sort of be better? And this is pretty well known. But So if the Pentateuch's interesting. Like most of the Pentateuch, there's like thousands of years go by in Genesis, but most of the Pentateuch is all around this one mountain, Mount Sinai. And so that, that part of the Pentateuch is Exodus 19.1 all the way to Numbers chapter 10, verse 10. So you can imagine this big mountain, and underneath that you could write Exodus 19.1 through Numbers 10, verse 10. But right before they get to the mountain, you have Israel on a journey to the mountain. That's Exodus 15 through 18. I should have like a whiteboard and be doing this. And then right after Numbers 10, you have Israel journeying away from the mountain. So they're Exodus 15 to 18, they're coming to the mountain. Exodus 19 to Numbers 10, they're getting the law at the mountain. And then Numbers 10, they're journeying away from the mountain. And it's clear, as you look at Exodus 15 through 18 and Numbers 10 and following, those two sections are parallel. It's really the way the writer explains this. So listen to, listen to this. Before the law... Exodus, you just go to Exodus, you can try to follow along. Exodus 15, 22 and 24, before the law. This is before the law on the way to the mountain. What happens? Exodus 15, 22 and 24. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And uh, what happens? Verse 24, the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Now, if you keep your finger there and go to Numbers chapter 10, verse 33. 
So they set out from the mountain of the Lord three days' journey, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And then chapter 11, verse 1, what happens? The people complain in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. So you have them going on a journey before, and they start out that journey complaining. You have them going on a journey after, and they start out that journey complaining. Exodus chapter 16, verse 3. Here you have uh, the people longing for the food of Israel, the people of, uh, of Egypt. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you've brought us out in this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And then if you go to Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Um, then you have uh, God providing manna and quail in Exodus 16, 4 through 26. And then you have Numbers 11, 6 through 35, where God gives them so much meat to eat in response to their complaining. Um, ex, uh, Exodus 16, verse 27, you have uh, the Sabbath command is violated. On the, you see on the seventh day, some of the people go out to gather, but they find none. Uh, is it Numbers 15, verse 32? I think you're getting the idea here. Um, while the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And we could walk through the rest of those. Exodus 17, Israel quarrels with Moses and asks why they brought them out of Egypt. Numbers 20, they, verses 3 through 5, they do that same thing. Uh, Exodus 17, 2 and 3, they question the God who's among them. Numbers um, 11, 20, they do that same thing. Israel battles against the Amalekites on the way to Mount Sinai, Exodus 17. Israel battles the Amalekites on the way from Mount Sinai, Numbers uh, chapter 20. So uh, here we have these parallel events before Mount Sinai, after Mount Sinai, like literally almost the same exact thing happening seven or more times. So it's kind of like, I think he's trying to get our attention. But look at what Israel does, what happens after Israel disobeys before the law, and what happens after Israel disobeys after the law. So before, before the law, Exodus 17, verse 13, um, says, Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So they defeat the Amalekites before uh, Mount Sinai. Numbers uh, 14 43 through 45. Um, For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword because you've turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. Uh, before, what happens before Exodus 18? 18 through uh, 22, this is um, where Jethro is telling Moses, you need help. And so he gets these men to help him. And then um, Numbers 11, 14 to 15. Um, Moses says, I'm not able to carry these people alone. The burden's too heavy for me. If you'll treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in sight, that I might not see uh, my wretchedness. Um, yeah, that, that's not the best example. <laughs> Exodus, uh, before Exodus 16, what happens in Exodus 16 is they get bread from heaven, they get this manna. Um, Numbers 15, verse 
36, what happens here um, or is, well, this is the Sabbath day. Oh, yeah, they break on, yeah, I see. Before in Exodus 16, I wish I had written my notes out more thoroughly there, but before Exodus 16, what happened was they, complete, they broke the Sabbath commandment, but they still get the manna. Uh, what happens in, in Numbers when they, the man breaks the Sabbath command is that he's stoned. Um, but anyway, you could look at what happens before Mount Sinai, what happens after Mount Sinai, when Israel disobeys. And the point, if we looked at all of those, is that before you see God's patience and his mercy, but after Mount Sinai, you see judgment. And so if you look at Israel before and after the law, they're not really transformed. They do the same things. And what happens is that the law exposes them and brings judgment on them, brings wrath on them, which is really what Paul said. The law brings wrath. So what's the hope then? The, ho- the Pentateuch not only doesn't say we can provide salvation through our keeping of the law. It does the opposite. It shows how we can't. And so it's not Israel's keeping the law that's the hope of the Pentateuch. So what is it? Because there is hope in the Pentateuch. There is. And I think one of the primary goals of the first five books of the Bible is to get you ready for that hope, which is what Jesus said. And let me show you a couple ways that it gets you ready for that hope. First, if you go all the way back to the beginning again. So what is the book of Genesis about? Basically, we call it the book of beginnings, and it describes the beginning of the world. It describes the beginning of Israel, the beginning of man's problems, uh, also the beginning of God's rescue plan. And so you know God creates this perfect world. Man rebels, sinner enters the world. So while God could have ended it there, he doesn't. He sets in motion a rescue operation plan through the promise that he gives in Genesis 3.15, that there will be an individual who will come to crush the head of the serpent and make all things right again. And from that point on, you know what Genesis is about? It's about who is that individual? Who is that seed? Uh, Who is the seed of the woman that's going to defeat the serpent? And so one of the ways you see this in Genesis is that that word seed is used 59 times in Genesis out of the 171 times it's used in the whole rest of the Old Testament. So Genesis is all about this seed, and that's why there's so many genealogies in Genesis. You're like, oh my goodness, Genealogies are so boring, but genealogies in Genesis are so important because Genesis is all about where's the seed? Where's the descendant of the woman? And if you want to figure out who is the descendant of the woman that's going to defeat Satan, then genealogies are, are pretty important. And the whole book is structured around these what they call toledot formulas, but it's just this Hebrew word that means these are the generations of. And if you look at these 11 toledot formulas, Genesis starts with a very wide-angle one, big picture. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And then it just keeps getting narrower and narrower until, by the end of Genesis, the very last one is, these are the generations of Jacob, who has these 12 sons. And the big question is, which of these sons will be the promise line that produces the seed? So really, this is so fun, because you think the Joseph story is about Joseph, but really, the Joseph story, in many ways, is about Judah. Because the jo- you would expect that Joseph, the whole point is, Genesis has set you up to think that Joseph is the promised one. And, I mean, he's the youngest one. That's who's been always getting the blessing. He, uh, the way, he has these revelations at the beginning that everybody's going to bow down to him. You think Joseph is going to be the one. And Judah's this evil, wicked guy. And yet, Judah ends up being the one from whom the, the Messiah is going to come. And that story is there. One of the reasons it's there is to demonstrate why it happened like that. Uh, so the book of Genesis is, gives us hope by, by showing us the hope is not in our performance, but in what God is going to accomplish through this descendant of the woman that he's going to send. Then if we drill down that on that a little more, we can look at Genesis 1 to 11 again, because Genesis 1 through 11 really sets up the problem the whole rest of the Pentateuch is about. Um, And you get a sense of that problem as you look at the final story in those chapters, the story of the Tower of Babel. So if you turn there, you know this story. It's after the flood, and the people gather together, and they want to build this tower. Why do they want to build the tower? Genesis 11, verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, 
and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. And so they don't want to obey God, but they do want to make a name for themselves. And the Hebrew word for name is Shem, so keep that in mind. But they want glory, and why? Someone explained, this is the pagan notion of eternal life. If you don't believe you're going to live forever, you make a name for yourself. But they say here specifically, it's because they don't want to be dispersed throughout the whole earth. They don't want to obey God's command. And we don't know all the reasons why. But if we've been reading Genesis 1 to 11 carefully, it's not surprising to find them doing this. So if you go back to Genesis 4, you remember the story about how Adam and Eve have these two sons, Cain and Abel. And Cain is envious of Abel, and so he murders him. Um, Genesis 4.11, God says to Cain, um, and now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And then Genesis 4.12, you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And the, the, the word for wanderer is the Hebrew word nod, which is there in Genesis 4.16, where Cain goes. Then Cain was sent away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So he's a wanderer in the land of wandering. And what does he do? Verse 17, he built a city. And you look at this in the context in verse 13, Cain uh, says, he's worried. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer, and whoever finds me will kill me. So he's scared, and God says, I'm going to protect you. But Cain, I think, doesn't trust that and really rebels against that, which is why he builds this city for himself for protection, to not have to do what God told him to do. And even Lamech later, if you look at the end, uh, Lamech basically says, if uh, Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. So Lamech's saying, if you think God is tough, I'm, I'm going to take care of myself much better than God took care of Cain. And so in Genesis 11, um, I, I think this is kind of similar to what's going on in Genesis 11. Let's build a city so we don't have to exercise faith in God's promises. We'll do for ourselves. We'll rely on ourselves. We'll take care of ourselves. We can protect ourselves Lamech style, better than God can protect Cain. And how does this plan end in Genesis 11? They want to build this city to make a name for themselves. But does it work? Like we said last week, we don't even know their names. But we do know the name of the city. It's, it's called Babel, confusion. So God shows how smart their project was. Instead of getting glory for themselves, he humbles them and basically sends the whole city into exile. They're spread out over all the earth. That's the problem. And of course, Genesis 12 is the solution. But what do we get before Genesis 12? We get Genesis 11:10. These are the generations of Shem, name. So Shem is name. They wanted to make a Shem for themselves. And then God's like, these are the generations of Shem. <laughs> That's connecting what we're about to read in Genesis 12 with Genesis 11. They want to make a name for themselves. We don't even know their names. And then God's like, let me tell you about the generations of name. Trusting in themselves won't work. It won't produce the name that they're trying to uh, accomplish for themselves. But what will work? Well, what does God promise Abram in Genesis 12, verse 2? And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, which I think already in the Pentateuch is pointing us to the solution. The solution is not us taking things into our own hands, but trusting God and his promise. That's been like there from the beginning. That's, that's what the Pentateuch is getting us to do. Stop trying to take things into your own hands, but instead trust God and his promise. And that's what we're going to see highlighted again and again throughout the rest of the book of Genesis and the Pentateuch. It's constantly preaching the importance of faith. So if we take Genesis again, because Genesis is like the Old Testament's Old Testament, if you think about it. It was written to people living way after what happened happened, to give them their context, their values. And one of the major themes in Genesis is what? Salvation by faith. So we've been saying, which, was, uh, which happened first, the Exodus or creation? Well, obviously creation happened before the Exodus, but... The Exodus happened before Moses wrote down all this stuff about creation. So he wrote down all this stuff for people after Mount Sinai in order to help them understand how a relationship with God worked. And if you think about 
what Genesis says about how a relationship with God works. It's all about salvation through faith. So if we think about Abraham, good guy or bad guy? Yeah, that's, that's a good answer. It's hard. The first story about Abraham after he, you know, God tells him to go is that he allows his wife to marry someone else. Um, so he's obviously a very flawed person. I'm not sure we would have him speak at our church, you know. Um, <laughs> certainly not the week after he let his wife marry somebody else. He's a very human uh, person, and his descendants are too. Isaac, Jacob, I mean Jacob, sure, what are, we have a new book on the back table, God's Rascal. He definitely, it's a good word for, for um, Jacob. I heard someone say, uh, preach a whole sermon, like, uh, what was it, like God's family, and it was on these guys. You're like, wow, what a family, Jacob, uh, Abraham. But what does Abraham get right? Genesis 15, um, God makes a promise about having kids. He still doesn't have kids. He's like, what's going on? God says, no, you really are going to have a kid. Somebody from your body is going to be your heir. God takes him outside, shows him the stars. This is how many descendants you're going to have. And how does Abraham respond? Genesis 15, verse 6. And he believed the Lord. And that's basically he amened the Lord. Um, Hebrew word, he amen the Lord. Your promises are true. You are trustworthy. And what does the text say happened as a result? And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And this is teaching Israel. This is what God wants from you. This is how you do right by God. You believe in him. And, that, and this is kind of the whole drama of Exodus through Deuteronomy. God's saving his people a certain way. But the big question is, would the people believe God? Would they actually believe him? And of course, that's the whole problem with Israel, is for the most part, they won't believe God. And so the law is not the means of salvation in the Pentateuch. It's faith. Even if you think about Exodus 20, we're like, oh, Exodus 20, the Ten Commands, the Ten Com it's not really even, it's the Ten Words, but the Ten Commandments. So, but how does, what's the very first verse, or verse, two verses? God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Where's the command in those two verses? There's not one. God's talking about what he did for uh, Israel before he talks about what their responsibilities are. So the, the Pentateuch is, the hope in the Pentateuch is not in our performance, but it is in faith in God but faith in what specifically about God? And um, one uh, cool way <laughs> to see that is to look at the literary design of the Pentateuch. And we can look at this a couple different ways. So we're just kind of having fun here on a Wednesday, uh, Wednesday night. I hope this is not too this is fun for me. I know we're going through a lot too fast, but uh, I, don't know. It's, I think this is, this is neat to see. Um, the literary designs. So let me show you the literary designs, a, a pattern in the Pentateuch that's pretty neat is you'll see narrative, that means story, and then you'll see poetry, and then you'll see like epilogue, something that just kind of an afterward. So uh, one example of that would be Genesis 1 to 26 is narrative. Genesis 1, 1 to 26 is narrative. And then you have poetry in 127. And, you know, your Bible helps you. You can see it's kind of set apart like that. And then uh, the afterward is 128 through chapter 2, verse 3. Or then the same thing happens in Genesis 2, 4 through 22. You have narrative. Then 223, you can see, is a poetry. And 224 through 6 is like the afterward. And so, anyway, you've got this pattern that happens where you have this long section of narrative, and then you have a little poetry, and then an epilogue. And when something like that happens in the Bible, when you're reading, it's like turbulence on an airplane. Um, it's the writer's way of trying to make you pay attention, because in the poetry and in the epilogue, he's going to give you some very clear theology. So I heard somebody call it HDT, High Definition Theology. It's going to be a high point in that poetry and in that epilogue 
for understanding something very specific. So again, if you even look at Genesis 1 through 3 as a unit, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 13 is mostly narrative. Then chapter 3, verses 14 through 19 is poetry. And uh, three, chapter, 20, uh, verse, chapter 3, verses 20 through 24 is uh, the epilogue. And what's there in the poetry? After he's told the story of the creation of the heavens and the earth and the fall, there's the curse, but there's also the promise, right? The, the, the gospel promise of the seed of the woman. Genesis 4 does something really similar. It's got narrative, 4, 1 to 22. Then it's got... Um, Poetry, chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, and then it's got this epilogue, verses 25 through 26. And what's happening here is that he's showing you the line of the serpent, the serpent's descendants, and it's terrible, but there is hope at the end in the epilogue because we see that Adam and Eve have another child, and this is where we need to look to for the deliverer. And then, of course, Genesis 5 is this long genealogy, which is a break in the pattern as well. And it's like a baby announcement and obituaries, but we're looking for the special baby, the the promised one. Anyway, maybe if we fast forward and just look at the whole book. So I'm saying, what are we supposed to have faith in? One way we can see what to have faith in is to notice this pattern of narrative narrative poetry epilogue. In the, the way the pattern works, in the poetry and the epilogue, there's this really clear punchline, this this, this, this concise, precise theology. And so if we look at the whole book of Genesis, Genesis 1 to 48 is basically narrative. And then for Genesis 49, 1 to 27 is poetry. And then 49, 28 to 50, and then chapter, yeah, chapter 50 is the epilogue. So 49, 1 to 27 is where you get this very focused look at the theology of the book, and what is this chapter about? If you look at verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. So literally, in the latter days. And so in, in Genesis 49, this sort of just like major high point of the book of Genesis, what we find is Jacob prophesying about the latter days. And really what happens is he ends up making this great promise about this messianic ruler who's going to defeat their enemies that's coming from the line of Judah in Genesis 49, verse 10. So if you say, is Genesis about the past or about the future? Well, you could really make an argument that it's about as he's writing it here, it's about the future. It's about this messianic ruler. It's pointing you to have hope in this messianic ruler who's going to come from the line of David, who's going to be the one who solves all of Israel's problems. And Joseph really is sort of a picture of what that ruler is going to do for Israel, bring blessing to the world, reconcile Israel. And actually, the whole, the whole Pentateuch is like that. So most of the Pentateuch is is narrative, but then there are like four or five major poems, just like the one I showed you in Genesis 49. And those poems, they begin, they all begin in the latter days, in the latter days. And a key part of each of the poems points to the the work of the Messiah. So again, I think we've said this before, but if you think of the Pentateuch as a long story, like this really super epic long movie that you're watching. And it's a, it's a musical, but not one of those musicals where they sing most of the time. A musical where they sing very rarely. In fact, only like four or five times. And so you're watching this super long movie, and all of a sudden, four or five times, there's this, just this song. And in that song, it, it's like turbulence to get you to wake up, and it's telling you where the hope's to be found. And in these poems, what you find is the hope is to be found in the Messiah. And I've got to show you this last one because it's one of the most important. I know I only have one minute to do it. So um, this is in Numbers chapter 24. And uh, this is probably the 
most important promise in the Pentateuch, but it comes from somebody named Balaam, and we've talked about him before, but Balaam, is he good or bad? Yeah, well, yeah, you, you might think good. Numbers 22, 18 says, um, but Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So that sounds kind of good, but Numbers 24, 1 um, sees, we see that he's not really that good. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to look for omens but set his face toward the wilderness. So there he's trying to disobey God. And later we find out in Joshua that he really was definitely a bad dude. He was a pagan prophet. And so, of course, we might wonder, as we look at this prophecy here in Numbers 24, should we trust Balaam, right? Because he's like a bad guy. But the writer sets you up for that, for trusting him. How does he do this? If you remember the story of Balaam, it begins with Balaam and a donkey, and you're like, why is this here? Why would they talk about Balaam and this donkey? This is Numbers 22, 22 through 35. Um, but what happens? You've got Balaam going somewhere, and he can't see that this angel's going to kill him. And so it's like Balaam is blind, but the donkey has insight, and he's able to stop Balaam from um, moving forward three times. Now you fast forward, and you've got this King Balak who's asking Balaam to curse Israel three times. So Balak is spiritually blind like Balaam was. And in both stories, it's on the third attempt that Balaam's able to see what he couldn't see as clearly before. So in both stories, on the third attempt, it talks about God opening Balaam's eyes. And so these are like parallels to know that, okay, Balaam's a little like a donkey. <laughs> you know, he's not somebody we would expect to be able to speak for God. But we should trust what he has to say. Balaam's blindness in the first story is like Balak's in the second. And just as the donkey sees what Balaam couldn't, God keeps Balaam from cursing Israel when Balak wants him to in chapters 23 and 24. So as someone's written, how could such a bad person speak forth such spiritually significant prophecies in the same way that a typically brutish beast is supernaturally enabled to see the messenger of the Lord and speak the truth? If God can speak through a donkey, he can do the same through a pagan prophet. And if like Balaam in chapter 22 and Balak in chapter 23 through 24, we fail to heed the words of the donkey and the words of the prophet, we do so at our own peril. And what does Balaam say in Numbers 24? He builds on his previous prophecies. Uh, first, in verses 5 through 9, he wishes that he was part of Israel. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel. Um, he's, he's wishing that he could be part of Israel. And then in Numbers 24, 15 through 19, he uh, says that he, he makes a prophecy about the coming Messiah King. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab, and it break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Sarah, also his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel's doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion or rule and destroy the survivors of the cities. And this is a big part of the hope of the Pentateuch, when you put it together with all the other promises and prophecies, that there is going to be a king who comes from the line of David who will uh, defeat God's enemies and establish God's kingdom. And so as we look at the Pentateuch, these books, why are they here? Well, they're definitely not here to get a get us thinking that somehow we can do this through our own efforts. In fact, the way they're designed is to prove we can. They can't. That Israel couldn't save themselves. And to show us that the hope is in what God's going to do through the Messiah that he's going to send. And there's actually more. Um, I wanted to try to walk you through the whole structure of the Pentateuch as explained by somebody by name Michael Morales because he shows that you know what is the central chapter in the Pentateuch? So the way the Pentateuch works, Leviticus is, he, he demonstrates Leviticus is the central book, and the central chapter is really Leviticus 16, which is the Day of Atonement. Um, but we'll have to get to that uh, an, another time. So that's just a little introduction to the Pentateuch to get us kind of interested in it. Probably uh, too, too fast, but it gives you something to, to think about, to meditate to meditate on um, and shows you why 
um, Paul wasn't, he wasn't crazy when he said, um, we're justified by faith. And why Jesus would, why Luke would say, hey, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and you guys should have known that. You should have, you totally should have known that. Um, any questions or thoughts? All right, well, let's, uh, let me just close this with a word of prayer. Father, this is a lot. We're just going through all this so fast. And, but it's, it's a joy to be able to meditate. And hopefully there are some thoughts here that uh, we can take home and we can sort of think about and, and mull on. And the goal is not just to uh, really know a lot of facts about the Hittites or the Uzzites or whoever, Lord. The, the goal is to be able to see Jesus and to uh, have greater confidence in you, Jesus, that you are the Messiah, you are our hope, to understand the hope uh, that you are um, going to accomplish for us, what you're going to accomplish for us, to understand our salvation. So, Lord, I know we're going through all of this uh, very quickly, and it maybe seems like a lot of material, but I, I pray that it would just stir us up to greater study and uh, whet our appetite for learning more, because this is a journey that we're going to be on our whole life studying the scripture. And so um, we just pray that you'll help us to enjoy it, to love it. We think of Psalm 1, blessed is the man who delights in the law of God. This is what he was talking about, the, the first five books, the Torah. So Lord, please help us to delight in this and to see Jesus as a result of our study. And we pray this in your name. Amen.